Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of the Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the of the new book, the newly released book, The Only Witness, A History of the Shroud of Turin. Uh, it is a historical fiction tracing a possible yet plausible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today, we're going to do something totally different. We're speaking with Jacob Wright. He is a biblical scholar, and today we're going to be doing something on the Old Testament as opposed to the Shroud. So I hope you enjoy it. Uh, but let me tell you a little bit about Jacob. He is a biblical scholar currently serving as professor of Hebrew Bible at Emory University. He's just written a new book, which we're about to tell you about. And um, prior to his Emory appointment, he taught at the University of Heidelberg, which is one of my, one of the most beautiful cities in the world in Germany. And one, of, and he is one of the foremost research oriented. Well, it is one of the foremost research oriented public universities in Europe. And uh, his new book, uh, which we'll talk about, is one of the top five um, mo uh, recent books uh, published on religion. So let's get started. So, uh, uh, Jacob, what's your backstory on uh, on getting involved with religious studies? How did you get involved with the Old Testament? Okay, yeah. Um, I grew up um, reading uh, widely philosophy, history, but also uh, religion. And religion was, for me, the most interesting stuff because it connected so much. The historical stuff, uh, the languages, the ancient Near East. Um, I'm also considers myself to be an intellectual. A lot of biblical scholars aren't intellectuals. They're kind of like, uh, they do translation or they do reconstruction, but I also have a larger philosophical interest. And so um, I had started out in pre-med and um, discovered that that was not going to cut it for me. And then started taking courses in Jewish studies and biblical studies and ancient Near Eastern studies, like the study of ancient Mesopotamia and Egypt and... Um, and was at a small school at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Um, <clears throat> and there weren't many students there who wanted to do what I did, few, but I had direct assistance from the professors. So we did directed studies. And I got to really study at my, learn at my pace, which was probably faster than otherwise. And I really got a, um, a really good introduction to the fields that I wanted to pursue. And then I went off and pursued it on a higher level. I ended up in Germany. So you mentioned Heidelberg. Before that, I was in Göttingen University. And I spent about 10, 12 years there. Um, I did my PhD work. And I consider Germany to be the best place to do training, research, and so forth. Just spectacular universities. Mm. And um, yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Well, that's interesting. We definitely have something in common. So if you've been there 12 years, uh, you must have been or may still be uh, fluent in German. And uh, uh, I lived over yeah, there. I was about... fluent then. And I I, <laughs> I speak now more regularly since I have a friend who speaks German. But it's it's good. I just speak with the, the American R again. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I was I lived over there for six or seven years, and I was just happy that when people asked me, they said, "Where is that accent from?" And it used to always be, "Well, you must be American." And then when I finally got onto the continent, I was uh, I thought that was a success. So they'd oh, say, yeah. "Well, you must be Dutch." I was never I never could Dutch. be considered to have a German 
accent but so you're good yeah that means you're good you got the good i was i was told that i was dutch too and the reason why is probably because they have that also that american r Mm. it's a it's a very difficult thing for us to learn i don't think i ever really got it (laughs) yeah uh, but if you if they're saying you're dutch it means that they you know a lot you know how to speak very well because the dutch can do any language especially german yeah yeah absolutely well and and dutch itself is like a you know, I don't know, an offshoot, I guess, of the of Deutsch. So, uh, but, uh, so, all right. So you just finished your book on the Old Testament titled Why the Bible Began, an Alternative History of Scripture and Its Origin. So uh, tell us about uh, how you got involved in writing this book. Um, I had taught a course on this online platform called Coursera. It's still running. It's like this, called a MOOC, M-O-O-C a massive open online course and um the it's called the bible's prehistory purpose and political future i'm a hebrew bible scholar i'm jewish and teach at candler school of theology which is a christian school um, of the trains ministers a seminary in the larger emory university so I, i'm an emory professor but within the school of theology i'm the only non-christian faculty member maybe they have mm. one another one now but for the long time, longest time, I was the only, and especially the only Jewish faculty member. So I train um, <clears throat> future ministers, Christian ministers, <clears throat> and they like having a Jewish professor who um, who is attuned to their needs and who helps them um, understand the Old Testament, but also um, why it matters and how to deal with it. And um, it's very fulfilling working with those students. But the Coursera stu- course was not for theology students, but rather for the whole world. Hmm. And um, in the first iteration, we had 28,000 students sign up for it. And that was, and then they had these flags where the students were. And I woke up the day where, you know, they launched it. And I just saw the whole map hmm. of, the, of the world, of the globe, Earth, um, uh, covered in these uh, flags. And they were in China and all over the place in the Middle East, not just in Israel, but all throughout the Middle East, hmm. and all over the place. And um, and from those students, I learned a different way of. I, I think it's it's fair to say I, from them, I learned a different way of approaching the Bible, because their questions were not the inside baseball kinds of questions of like, we know Moses wrote the Bible, da 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 da, but rather we know nothing about the Bible. Number one. We do know, though, that it's one of the most important pieces of literature in world history. And we want to know what it's about. Why is it important? So when you explain it to somebody in China or in somebody in Iran, you can't say, well, uh, you you can't make normative claims like you can when you're talking to seminary students. And then I started unpacking. So what is why is the Old Testament such an important work of world literature? And... Um, and that got me onto that fundamental question of, first of all, why we have a Bible, right, in the first place. That's the title. Um, why did we have to discover all the literature from the ancient Near East, from these massive civilizations that conquered ancient Israel and Judah? Why did we have to wait till modern times and modern archaeology? to uncover them, to excavate them from the dirt, 
way down deep, mm. meters mm. deep in the, in the earth. And why during that time was the Bible transmitted, the Hebrew Bible transmitted, spawning new kinds of literature like the New Testament, and then Islam and Quran and all kinds of different communities of faith. And, um, and that's just so remarkable because it comes from this very small little place on the outskirts of civilization. And um, I want to get at that. And so some of the stuff that I try to do is like show how the Bible is, uh, relates to the lives of ordinary folks. Think of Abraham and Sarah, right? That's how the story begins. An mm -hmm. aged couple. They don't have a child. Like, <clears throat> why does... Why does the biblical story begin that way? You would think like a great epic would begin with a hero, Odysseus, <laughs> or Gilgamesh, right? But you have great hero epics, David, David and Goliath and stuff. But that's not how the Hebrew Old Testament begins. The Old Testament begins with a family story in Genesis, and then a story of liberation from slavery in Egypt in Exodus, and the movement to, sorry about that, movement to a new land and all the problems that occur there. And you have all kinds of stuff that's wisdom literature and books of like love poetry and the Song of Songs and Proverbs. And sorry about this, I need to turn my watch off here. Um, and, <clears throat> and stuff like the Book of Ruth, which always gets me. I talk a lot about that because the Book of Ruth is just a story of a, of a widow and her her widowed daughter-in-law and how they make it in the world. It's just like, that is quite remarkable. That's very modern stuff. And why was it so modern at its time? Why did, uh, what, what prompted someone to start writing or groups of scribes to start writing literature like that? And then I started noticing that the, um, and this is really central to my thesis, this literature really, highlights trauma and defeat and conquest and destruction and exile and it's not we find that theme elsewhere in the in the literature from Nineveh and the, Egypt and so forth but it's we who did it to others we conquered these mm. and these messages of conquest of imperial control of power once again are found deeply buried in the earth and then this literature that says we began pretty well. We were liberated. Our conquest was at the beginning, but then we lost everything, mm. exiled. And we now live in a new age, the age of Ezra and Nehemiah. We're returning to our land. We're rebuilding, but we don't have our own kingdom. Esther, yes, we have a queen, but she's the queen to a foreign king. And we are all, we're all scattered across the globe. And stuff like that, that um, really places defeat in a new way of life that emerges after, out of the ashes of defeat and after catastrophe. Um, and I think that's what lends the Bible its enduring significance, that um, it seeks a new way forward in a world of superpowers and in which some kingdoms are just wiped off the map. We don't know anything about these kingdoms, but we do know other than from the Bible and now archaeology. But all those kingdoms just went the way of all flesh. Mm. And um, because one thing you can say about 
any state, any country, it's going to be wiped out sooner or later. And all kingdoms have come and gone, all states, all countries. And what the Bible is about, according to my thesis, the Hebrew Bible is a new way, a new plan about being a people. And thus uh, the covenant and God and the relationship between this God, Yahweh, often called Jehovah, but really Yahweh is better. Um, his relationship with his people, Israel, and their unfolding uh, saga, love saga, relationship. Um, it's, a, it's a really wonderful story. It's problematic in some aspects, but I think we can step back and say, well, 2,500 years ago, yeah, you, you would expect some things that are not to our taste in them. Polygamy and stuff like that, but it's doing also some very innovative stuff. And I want to draw attention to that because I think it's so important for us as we face the demise of our civilizations right now more than ever. Mm. Yeah. And uh, I think that was uh, one of the things that really surprised me is, uh, you know, as the, uh, you know, you, you call it the alternative history of scripture and its origins, um, you know, where, how did this tiny little backwater people that were kind of at the crossroads of the of the larger civilizations of Egypt and Persia and Babylon and then eventually Rome and Greece how did it survive and and at the same time put together a written story of its history that had that had so much meaning to the you know to the Jewish people but also still has so much people to uh, so much meaning to uh, to modern people as well yeah and that's what I'm trying to get people to, uh, my readers, to to focus on. Um, when we don't step back and see and, and appreciate um, the very fact that we have a Bible, mm. um, we start to assume that, well, you know, Islam has the Quran and other religions have their text, so everybody has scripture. Scripture is its norm. But scripture is what did not exist that religions did not have text at their centers before the hebrew bible mm. and the reason for that is they've lost their kingdom and the scribes who are putting together this literature drawing an older text carving them conducting them doing all kinds of interesting stuff with them expanding creating new stories all of that they are um working after the defeat but they have a an idea, and that is these texts, this body of text that we love as scribes, that we share with each other, um, that that could be the foundation of a new community. Our community is going to be a, a people of the book. Mm. And um, they didn't know that title. That was the people of the book is a Muslim expression applied to Jews and Christians. But the, the first people of the book is what they actually are inventing. And um, I'm in awe of it. I have to say, you know, because <laughs> we all have books in our bosoms, right? We, you're a, a big author and you devote your life to writing and reading and so forth. And you have a community of people who read. And, and we are communities and societies founded around text. Um, even as we become less literate in the traditional sense, the book is evolving. We were talking about that before we started recording how um, <clears throat> very different kinds of publishing modes are emerging, even now. 
and uh, they will continue to emerge and evolve. And um, but they go back to this idea that there could be a text of some sort, whether it's on your cell phone or what have you. I don't know. <laughs> There's all kinds of new stuff, um, but it is nevertheless a text. And the predecessor to this was writing on tablets, writing on stone, writing on what we call ostraca, which are broken shards of a vase, you know, pottery. They didn't have paper, was very expensive, papyrus and, mm. and uh, leather that they used for mm, scrolls. Parchment. Parchment, yeah. So they didn't have all that um, readily available to them. And when they did write, they would write on broken pieces of pottery because it's flat and they can paint on them or use ink. And, um, <clears throat> but they had this idea that these texts could not be used, could you be used not only for communicating letters across, you know, we have these letters that are sent from the general to an officer, you know, dispatches them to the front lines and different kinds of records and so forth. But they had a different idea. They would, they thought that a whole body of text that covers family stories, stories of liberation, uh, and a shared body of laws, written laws, um, a collection of poetry like you have in the prophets, beautiful poetry. Think of Handel's Messiah, mm. cover ye my people. Just wonderful stuff. And they're writing for themselves. This is poetry that like nothing before, and they're creating this <clears throat> um, without an understanding that it would ever be Handel's Messiah. Right? That'd be the last thing they could ever imagine. Mm. That yeah. would be formed in all the concert halls of, mm. of the world. And <clears throat> what really gets me is that um, the reason why their art is so powerful is because they devoted themselves to real a real pursuit of truth and of collaboration and of learning from each other and collecting different things that they found meaningful and important for their people to read and to learn from. And they had this vision before ever, this aspiration that there could be a community of readers. And that was unheard of. And it mm. took a long time for it to materialize. And for some rabbis, <laughs> it's still not, it's still not, robust enough. They want more and more people to come and read together on the Saturday and Shabbat and so forth. But that's the kind of push. And uh, many of your audience in, in your audience and your followers will probably belong to reading clubs or Bible studies and so forth. And that's all directly connected mm. to the moment after defeat when Ezra in the narrative of the book, not historically so much, but in the imagination of this age a community that's reconvened in jerusalem come from all over the world to come back to their land and they have one thing on their mind and that is bring us the book read it to us we want to we want to know what it's about and over the course of the month that is depicted there in these chapters they learn how to read mm. of course that's probably not historically accurate totally or i don't know but it is setting forth a vision that that from scribes that we need a community of readers and that's what's going to hold us together if we can stay on the same page 
even though we are divided by distance and by generations. And um, <clears throat> I talk about this important German philosopher and poet, thinker, Heinrich Hein from the 19th century. And he um, he was Jewish, but he had to convert to save his life. And um, But he wrote about the Jews having their um, portable homeland. So in this in the form of this text that talks about their homeland and about how they got there and how they lost it and what the conditions are, the laws for retaining it and the covenant, and their God who brought all of that, they carry that with them. And they carry copies of that. And therefore they can still be a people, even if it's in the imagination, even if it's in the art and in the the mind. And for me, that idea of peoplehood that emerges from that is very much a, a, a state of mind, an imagination, a, a will to remember things that we've done together in the past and want to do in the future. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, uh, I, and I, I definitely uh, see that. And um, one of the things that even historically that I always thought was a challenge is even after, you know, parchment and papyrus were invented, um, you know, to actually write out a book, whether it was a, you know, a, a book of the Old Testament or a book of the New Testament, you needed to have, you needed to have a whole sheep farm or, you know, a whole cow farm in order to be able to have enough parchment to actually yeah. write out that book. And even if you had access to that, that parchment, um, you know, transferring that parchment out to the people so that other people could have access to it. They were so valuable that you you really couldn't even do that. You might have and, one copy of it. You couldn't have more than one copy of that. Yeah, course. yeah. And um, uh, and one thing that I thought was interesting, so there, there's, because there's a couple of like inventions that seem to follow along with, uh, with how in particular the Bible, whether it was the Hebrew Bible or the, or the New Testament, the, you know, the modern Bible, um, you have in the 1500s, you have Luther kind of con concurrent with the Gutenberg uh, printing press. And you talked about how the alphabetic, I can't remember exactly what the term was, but the alphabet became invented prior to that. It was cuneiform and hieroglyphics and how that may have also uh, spurred on the ability for more people to actually read and then to be able to write so that other people could read it uh, in uh, in a lot easier way. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, that's a tricky uh, problem, actually, because the traditional narrative that you have is that um, when the alphabet was invented, you only had to learn, like, what, 20 or so letters, rather than in Eoporn, we'd have to learn hundreds of symbols and the hieroglyphics. It really requires a lot of memorization and only the most skilled and long-trained long uh, scribes would be able to really communicate with these languages. And so it was said that if you have the move to the alphabet was just like an explosion in literacy. Weirdly enough, we find that the literacy was not, it was still just maybe 1%. Um, nevertheless, it did grow faster. It had more potential. I think that's the fair thing to say. It didn't immediately take off, but... Um, and even at the time of Jesus, if we're talking about, maybe, I don't know, that's not my area, that's my pay grade. I'm doing a little bit earlier, but in my mm -hmm. time period, say the 5th century, 1%. Now, in the 3rd century, I would say 
I would guess maybe it gets up to 5% or something like that. But it may be in the time of Jesus, 10%. I'm not sure. I, I should know that actually. But it's not an explosion, but it does make it easier. It does make it simpler. Um, it is more, it, it is um, something that allows it to also be um, written on different kinds of, of materials. So that if you're thinking about cuneiform, it's in clay, and you take a stylus and you make cuneiform or wedge-shaped formed mm -hmm. shape, web, whatever, wedge-formed characters, cuneiform. And um, and that's harder than to like, so big tablets, they're heavy, and they try to make them very small, but it's also complicated and all of the production around that. And I think there is something too that the alphabet really is part of um, the reason we have Greek and Hebrew text. The, the alphabet is alpha, beta, gamma. That's where we get the word alphabet. Mm. The Hebrew word for the alphabet is aleph, bet. Do you hear that? Alpha, aleph. Mm. That's beta, bet. So the Greeks picked up the alphabet, not from the Hebrews, but from the the Levant, Canaan, ancient Canaan, the Phoenicians. And it was Canaan, Israel, Phoenician, so forth, that gave the alphabet to Greece. And that's an important part of this. Not my story, but it's an important thing that one has to remember. And it's those texts that, strangely enough, have also been transmitted throughout the centuries, like the Bible and other alphabetic texts. I think it would be very difficult to have hieroglyphic book of the mm. dead being transmitted and read by people today. Whereas with a bit of schooling, you can learn Greek and um, Hebrew, but hieroglyphics is, I don't teach Egyptian too much, a little bit, but cuneiform I do, and it takes students a long time. Mm. To yeah. Well, and I could imagine, uh, and now I'm not familiar with Chinese or Japanese or Korean, but um, as I understand it, you know, that's also a, uh, you know, a, I don't know, a text where you have to learn, you know, many, many, many hundreds and maybe even thousands of different characters to be able to yeah. kind of graduate to the next level. And that that in and of itself, uh, you know, is a big effort, whereas just learning, you know, 20 letters or 26 letters and and then using that to learn, um, it almost makes the the uh, <laughs> an ancient form of the internet. We now have a way to communicate across the expanse uh, in something that you know people can can really you know potentially learn, as opposed to trying to figure out um, uh, what That's each one of these little yeah. hieroglyphics are. Yeah, and and it's difficult to say anything universal about this because. Um, Chinese is very difficult to learn too. Mm. They have a lot of different symbols. They don't have a 26 letter alphabet. So it is possible. I We make assumptions um, based on the simplicity of the alphabet. I say a little bit about that, but my interest is more in um, maybe the medium and the, and the languages that emerge out of this, writing in the, in the vernacular. Right, so Martin Luther is uh, at the time of the Gutenberg Bible, right, pub printing press as a, a revolution in publication and media. But 
what Martin Luther is doing is translating the Bible into spoken German. Mm. So that's what we call a vernacular. And he wasn't the first to do something like that. The three crowns of Italy were started writing in, in Italian. Mm. Petra, mm -hmm. for example. Right. And um, and they, these were scribes, these were artists who said, no, I'm gonna start look, I'm gonna start listening to the average spoken way people, farmers and others talk, because there's beauty in it. And we're not going to do it in Latin. We're going to do it in Italian. Mm. And um, there was no like, there wasn't really no word for like Italian or German. People had to come up with different kinds because it wasn't a concept. It was just what various things that the tongues of people mm. didn't speak Latin spoke. And so Luther, he wasn't the first, but he's moving in that direction to say, um, let's write or translate the Bible, but also write our books, not in the language of the elites, the Latin, but in language that if someone can read, they're going to understand. Yeah. Yeah. That was yeah. a major move. And that's what I'm saying is also going on with the um, composition of the Old Testament. It's in Hebrew. It's not in Aramaic. Aramaic would have been the Latin of the ancient world hmm. and other languages they could have used. But um, it wasn't. It was in their spoken language. And later it becomes kind of a an, uh, a heritage language. So most people on the ground would have been speaking Aramaic. So the Hebrew actually becomes a bit more difficult. But nevertheless, nevertheless they preserve it. So that through the language, there's some kind of cultural preservation going on. And, and it's not just being subsumed all into the the lingua franca of the age uh, mm. Mm. and um, which is english today basically lingua franca is english today and spanish but uh, for the world and um and then it became greek after aramaic with the hellenistic conquest and the bible was translated into greek in a very important move it's called the septuagint mm. that's how the hebrew bible became so important to beyond jewish circles the ones who translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek were Jews. Mm. They were living in Alexandria, Egypt. And they were doing it pretty late, you know, maybe two centuries before Jesus. Mm. And um, they're doing it for Greek-speaking Jews. But what happens is then Greek-speaking non-Jews can read it. And they start reading it. And some of them don't like it. Some of them polemicize against the Jews and say, how dare you say stuff like this in your books, talking about there's only one God and all that stuff. And persecution follows. But also, um, it also gets the interest of other people um, uh, in a less polemical way. And of course, it's the bedrock for Christianity, mm. right? So that uh, <clears throat> there's an Old Testament Greek throughout the greek world throughout the mediterranean you have communities who can read greek and then they can access that literature if it had not been translated from hebrew to greek that would never have been possible so it's mm -hmm. a very weird thing and by the way the rabbis have a problem with it being translated into greek because now the old testament this literature written for a small tiny people about their past trying to survive in a world in which 
the powers want to extinguish them um, is now being read by our oppressors and used against us. And uh, <laughs> now that is interesting. So uh, yeah, very interesting. I hadn't thought about that. And uh, uh, to be able to use that, like you said, against the uh, against the Jews at the time. So going back, um, you talked about um, how uh, Assyria in the 700s and the Babylonians later on and the Persians a little later than, than that had an enormous influence on the Bible. And you talked a little bit about that with Ezra and Nehemiah, but tell us how that impacted uh, those three errors kind of impacted the uh, the writing, the transmission, and then the, the ability to read the Bible. So the Assyrians are uh, this people from what is northern Syria today in Iraq, Iraq, uh, Mesopotamia. And they are, it's very complex. Their history goes back three millennium BC. It's like, but they really get going in the first millennium and um, a little bit in the second millennium, but they really get taken on the war path. Great wars like Tilat, Palazzo and so forth establish um, an empire in the in the proper sense of the word, in, sense, in the sense that they have their homeland, but they now have provinces that have been conquered, kingdoms that have been transformed into provinces. And Assyria is over here, and Egypt's over here. The Mediterranean's right here. So they come, and they they can't cross the Arabian Desert. They can't go straight through, because the Arabian Desert is, what's the word, irreversible, untraversable, yeah. can't be yep. crossed, uh, because of you. There's no water. Go across. It's just very hard. Yeah. Um, it's dry. It's very long. So they go up <laughs> with the rivers and down along the coast. Mm-hmm. That's where Judah and Israel are. Why are they doing that going around the coast? Because they want to get to Egypt, where the gold is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's this other imperial center, this other center of civilization. That was the holy grail uh, for the Mesopotamians. So as they make their way down that land bridge to Egypt, they wipe out everything in their way, unless you bow down. And Israel, the northern king, there's two kingdoms in the Bible, the northern king of Israel and the southern king of Judah, north and south. I make a big deal of that in the book because I mm. think it's it's very similar to north and south in the U.S., but also north and south Korea and east and west Germany. So there's those kinds of political situations where there is a division and one is trying to say, well, who are we in relation to if we're divided, what, what unifies us? Anyway, the northern kingdom is wiped out first because it gets in the way of the Assyrians and doesn't cooperate. Judah, however, continues on the southern kingdom. And the Judah had always been smaller than the northern kingdom. And when the northern king of Israel was wiped out, Judah could like seize the day. And they they saw themselves as the new Israel. But now that the old Israel had been wiped away. Similar to like the Christian church that sees itself as the new Israel in relation to Jews um, called supersessionism. Has a, it's a problematic thing, but it goes all the way back to this moment when Israel is wiped out by Assyria, but Judah remains. And what happens in the north as they're wiped out, that's where we have the Exodus story and so forth, where they are really trying to affirm that we can be a people without a king. Mm. We got to this land not because King David brought us, but because our God did. What makes us the people is our covenant with that. We can be a people, once our kingdom is wiped out, we can go back to that kind of peoplehood that we had at the very beginning. Mm. 
And so they set in motion the most basic idea that is uh, for the whole biblical project. What does it mean to be a people? What is the relationship between being a people or slash nation and having a state such as a kingdom, what we call a country, borders and armies and palaces and taxation? All that. If we don't have all that, can we still be a people? What is a people? How do we? And that goes back to what we were saying about text and it being revolving around text and having that as the foundation. Um, but before there were texts, there was ideas like our God. Our covenant with our God is what makes us a people. And then that goes right into like, well, what is the, where is the, the covenant? It's in written form. Here it is. So the text and the covenant and every move, there was always that literary move. Even as it was very conceptual and intellectual and theological and extremely innovative. And so Israel is shaped in the, after it's been defeated uh, by the northern uh, the northern kingdoms has been defeated by the Assyrians, and they set in motion this idea of being a people and how it all came together. And it goes back to earlier ideas, but that's where it really comes to the fore in a in a literary way. And then Judah is resisting, and that's where we get the stories about King David and all of that, um, saying uh, God chose Jerusalem. And David, Zion, and the Davidic dynasty, and the Messiah, and the Messianic idea that we have in Judaism, and that's very prominent in Christianity, that goes back to this time when you have the Davidic kingdom saying, the northern kingdom is gone because they sinned. They need to come back and recognize Jerusalem and the Davidic dynasty, and who is Yahweh's Messiah, as that is where it's all at. Why? They're on the throne, and they're ruling in Jerusalem. And you have political factions in Jerusalem that are saying, we're never going to go down like Israel, because this is God's city. Mm. Then it goes down, and it's destroyed. And the ones who destroyed are the Babylonians. And they do it about 135 years after the Assyrians take out the northern king of Israel. And that's when the two sides come together. So you have that Davidic messianic thing that was before the destruction in 586, competing with that northern concept of covenant and peoplehood. And then the Judean authors have to say, okay, that the different concepts of what it means to be people and so forth, that is where we have to, that's what we have to embrace because we're no longer a kingdom either. And so what do we do with that messianic moment? One day in the future, we're going to get it back. One day it will be restored to us. But in the meantime, we have to learn how to be a people without a kingdom, without a Messiah, without sovereignty, without Zion. Mm. Or we can have Zion in Jerusalem, but it was, it's going to be not the center of the world. It's, not going to, it's going to be a humble habitation for us and our God. And that delay of the Messianic return is foundational, of course, to both Judaism and Christianity. But what, what the genius is, is to take that moment of sovereignty, of political power, of where the world is really run and controlled by a force that brings true peace. And to say, it's not for us in the present. We're not going to have that. We're going to live under, in the shadows of these imperial powers. And we're going to learn how to make it. 
because life is good if we can each just kind of live out our days in peace. We don't have to have it all. Mm. One day we'll have it all, but it'll be a far time in the future and only God knows when. And so we have to do it in the here and now. We have to focus on our families, our education, taking care of our land, making sure that we don't get into trouble with others around us, all of that, which is just powerful survival strategies for um, all communities. <laughs> education is like foundational to um, how colonized, conquered uh, peoples all over the world have uh, have discovered so a way of going forward. I think of, real briefly here, um, when Russia conquers Poland back in the 19th century, um, uh, Rousseau writes to Poland and says, you know how to become, you know how to make Poland a place that no Russian can conquer? It's to instill in all Poles, all the Polish people, an idea of what does it mean to be Polish? What does it mean to be a people? And it's about education. Mm. And so here is Poland under the, the shadow of Russia, but that's where this small country starts to turn itself to education, its culture. And it and it's so many different places in the world where the big European powers have colonized Africa and everywhere. You have these projects of saying, we're gonna like focus on education now. And weirdly enough, they've done it often through the translation of the Bible into their own languages. Mm -hmm. Many of them did not have written languages. And some of the first movements towards to writing down their language and putting it into a, a script was for the purpose of giving them a Bible. And of course, that's missionary activities, and we tend to look down upon that and often. But it's actually quite remarkable, and I'm actually quite impressed by it all in the sense that these are people trying to survive. They recognize education as the key to the kingdom. And then they learn that directly from the Hebrew Bible. They get their own language in a script from the Hebrew Bible because it's going to be translated. And they imagine themselves as the new Israel. Hmm. Where is it? Just like Israel was liberated by the, we can also, and, and you know, all of that. So yeah. My book is really about that kind of side that we've lost when we reduce the Bible to thou shalt not. Mm. Well, do you it's think so the, yeah. Do you think though, the way the Assyrians, uh, when they took over the Northern kingdom, where they basically scattered all the Northern uh, Israelites, whereas when Babylon came in and took over the sun, Southern kingdom, they, they took them all back, but they didn't necessarily scatter them, so to speak. They were allowed oh, to stay together. Yes. Yeah, um, that's interesting that you bring that up. Um, and that's that's very well noted, that the Assyrians are trying to, um, to, like you say, scatter, divide the populations. Assimilate, and they, yeah. And bring in foreign populations and plant them in the homeland so that the whole identity is destroyed. And people say, well, the 10 lost tribes of Israel are lost at this moment because of the Assyrian deportation policy, what we call a two-way deportation policy. The, the native inhabitants moving them somewhere else, 
and then the native inhabitants of another country move them in their back into their place and just kind of destroy the whole system. And uh, empires and conquering powers have done that throughout the millennia thereafter. It's not something that is just the Assyrians are doing. The Babylonians don't do it as much. Um, I would say that that although um, that goes a long way to explaining some of uh, the survival of the Judean kind of quality, you know, why Judah is so important, that too may be overstated. It may be too much maybe made of that, like too much is made of the alphabet. Mm. Um, but it's interesting that you bring that out because that's not something that a lot of people know about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well uh um yeah thank you so uh well because it you know if they were able to stay together and maintain even though they're under the rule of the babylonians they've kind of learned how to survive uh you know when cyrus sends them back to uh to jerusalem and then they they still get to survive under the the various hegemonic powers of is of Egypt and or Rome and or Greece and or whatever they kind of learn. And certainly even in Christian times, you know, they the Jews really stayed together. They paid those those taxes off, but they stayed together, just like kind of yeah. like you said, they learned and they solidified that learning into their whole culture so that they could survive without a king, without a central power, and yet uh still be able to maintain their culture. That's really wonderfully said. I couldn't say it better. I wish I had used your words there. That's exactly what I'm getting at. And that is the making of the education and the family and a life of culture of one's language, of one's songs, of one's wisdom, um, of one's ancient prophecies that tell about a new, like, handle society, comfort you, my people. All of that is just what holds the Jewish people together in a very real sense. And it also is what creates new communities like the Christian church and other kinds of, that learn from this people of the book mm. strategy that Christians are in a very real sense, the people of the book, right? Protestant Christians, especially, um, you know, have the, the Luther Bible onward so much around the text, but Roman Catholicism is very much, a, you know, that's some of the best, most important biblical scholarship comes from Roman from the Vatican and so forth. So you have all kinds of different things going on in Christianity of all stripes and colors. And it wouldn't exist if it were not this period that I've studied. Mm. It was, uh, yeah. They laid the foundation for it. Yeah, I think so. And then it just progressed and progressed and progressed. Yeah. So uh, we're kind of a little bit out of time. I've got like 15, 20 more questions <laughs> that I would love oh my to goodness. ask. But, well, I'm uh, happy to come back on again if you ever yeah. want to do Absolutely. would love to. And yeah, um, yeah. But uh, before we uh, close, is there anything else you'd like to uh, mention? Oh, I think we had a good conversation. And um, and if anybody wants to like bring me on, uh, do it for free to their Bible study group or their reading group or anything like that, I'm happy to do that. Um, if you If you buy the book and you want me to come in and talk about it, I'm not trying to sell the book to make any money on it. We were just talking about we could make very little money off books and all the, my proceeds go to the Atlanta mission here. But um, I I am very, um, very happy with how the book turned out. I put my heart and soul on it and I think it has an important message. I think it's, I'm, I'll put it this way. I'm blessed to be the conduit of this stuff because mm. it is something that I think should have been said a lot more frequently and it hasn't really been said before. And um, 
I'm very blessed to be able to say it and I'm humbled by it too. And I want people to read it. And like the biblical authors themselves, they really kept themselves out of the picture. We don't know who the scribes were. We They focused on these other figures that they like Abraham and Sarah and Moses and Miriam, all that. And um, I don't want to make it about my name. I think it's about the ideas. And if people want to come and talk about these ideas and so forth, I'm happy to jump on Zoom with them. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you. And I may take you up on that. Uh, there's okay. uh, what you've what you wrote. I was I mean, there were so many interesting points in there and and uh, definitely recommend it to anybody that's interested in the Old Testament. And then, of course, uh, for Christians, the Old Testament is the basis of everything we do. And so uh, understanding and learning not only that, you know, what's in the Old Testament, but kind of the the alternative history of Scripture and its origins. So uh very good and very fascinating. And, well, I'm uh, learning definitely. a lot from you in terms of how um, you're doing these interviews, and um, I really appreciate it. I know you have some viewers who really appreciate what you're doing, too, and that is um, maybe I'll have a channel one day and I'll bring you on. <laughs> yeah, it's, absolutely. I would I'll love to. <laughs> absolutely. Actually, it's kind of funny, uh, but um, we are uh, studying in, at, at our church. We're studying the Dead Sea Scrolls, and so oh, there's you? all kinds of interesting things, and um that came out of that and, you know, and the different writings. So uh, absolutely. But uh, with that, though, I don't want to keep you too long. We've definitely gone over time and, and really oh, a, fasc a pleasure. Yeah, a fascinating story. Jacob Wright uh, on his book, Why the Bible Began, an alternative history of scripture and its origins. And uh, where can we find out uh, more about the book? Uh, where can we um, buy the I book? I think, uh, unfortunately, Amazon is the place to go. Uh, we were talking about that. Amazon's kind of... Uh, um, changed publishing, but that's probably the easiest. Just go to Amazon, and if you do read it or take a look at it, whatever, uh, leave a review. I love to see what people are saying. Some of them are pretty cruel, but <laughs> I still like reading them. It helps me as a writer to know, like, well, like you, guy, you know, you said um, you like that first part with all the archaeology, and a lot of people say, oh, that's way too much detail. So <laughs> it's good to hear that. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I'm just weird that way. But uh, anyway, uh, why the Bible began uh, and an alternative history of scripture and its origins written by Jacob Wright. Jacob, thank you so much. And uh, for my audience, uh, please stay tuned for many other videos in this series of the backstory of the Shroud of Turin. And of course, now a little bit of Old, story, Old, Old Testament, which is the back backstory of the Shroud of Turin. <laughs> So uh, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. Jacob, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Guy. <laughs>